I'm Michael Schulder, and on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. The first person I met after my dad died was our bankers who pulled our loans. Bob Chapman was 30 years old when his father suddenly died, which left him in charge of an old St. Louis manufacturing company that was teetering. It was so weak that with the loss of my father, who was the one person they had faith in, uh, the banks decided to pull out. Now, I would say to you, to your listeners, from my greatest challenges came my greatest learnings. The trauma of the banks pulling out created an opportunity. Because you either learn or you die. Bob Chapman has learned. He has learned how to find value where others see none. He has learned how to protect American jobs, resisting pressures to export those jobs to countries where wages are lower. And he has learned a new way of leading that he captures in the title of his book, Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. Bob Chapman, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. It's good to be here. And let me ask you first question, which I like to ask people are, are you an insanely curious person? I'm insanely interested in making a difference in life. So one of the things that fascinates me before we get to, to the fundamental changes you made in terms of how you run the company and how you treat your people, before we get to that, I think people are going to be interested in learning about just how close and how often you came to seeing this company die while you were at the head. If you can just give us that thumbnail description of, of how your father got in and when and why you took over the company and, and what you were presented with when you took over this company, Barry Waymiller. The company was started in 1885, making equipment for the brewing industry, founded by Mr. Barry and Mr. Waymiller, an accountant and an engineer who developed a machine, a pasteurizer to pasteurize beer so local breweries could ship their beer to more remote cities. So that's kind of the founding. My dad got involved. Um, he was an Arthur Anderson accounting manager, was asked to do the audit of Barry Waymiller. Uh, in the process, met Mr. Waymiller. The this was in the very early 1950s. Uh, the company was struggling. It had struggled for some years after Mr. Waymiller had died. Uh, and, and so my dad stepped into the company, a relatively weak company, and to help sell the company uh, because, again, the family's ability to run it beyond the entrepreneur was very limited. And uh, my dad, Mr. Waymiller, ended up dying. My dad invested uh, $30,000 in the 1950s, and that ended up uh, being the controlling interest of the company. So my dad stepped in to, and really tried to keep the company alive it was so weak financially, it was, but, and, 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 but nobody wanted to buy the company. So in 1965, my father's $30,000 investment uh, uh, ended up being the controlling interest in the company. So I joined the company in 1969. And the interesting thing is my title when he asked me to join the company from Price Waterhouse was somebody he could trust. That's kind of a statement of how dismal the company was. Uh, in that environment. So I worked with my dad for six years to try and uh, get the company going forward. Uh, he died in 1975 suddenly of a heart attack. And uh, just a statement of the financial health, the first person I met after my dad died was our bankers who pulled our loans. It was so weak that with the loss of my father, who was the one person they had faith in, 
uh, the banks decided to, to pull out. Now, I would say to you, to, to your listeners, from my greatest challenges came my greatest learnings. Thank God, goodness that the uh, banks pulled on us because it shocked me. And I, uh, uh, I rose to that challenge and, and turned the company around on a dime w uh, with the intensity of my father dying and, and the bank uh, pulling on us. So that experience was helped shape you know, the, kind of the foundation of my leadership skills. Uh, and again, I was a very traditional businessman in that environment. You know, you cut costs, you, you do everything you can do to grow the company uh, and, and to survive, pay back debt, et cetera. So that, that was kind of the environment that we started, a very weak old family company uh, that could not find its way to create a future. And so I began, uh, after my father died, to try and give it a future. Uh, and I got into some new initiatives in solar energy, electronic inspection, filling systems, and all those seemed to go very well. Then by 19, so my dad died in 75. I grew it from 18 million to 72 million in five years. When you say 18, are you talking, you're talking revenues now? Yes. And so in that environment, uh, it was a very dynamic environment. Here's a company that hadn't grown for decades and all of a sudden exploded with growth with these new initiatives with the full support of our banks, uh, with the full support of our shareholders. And then in 19, about 1982, uh, those dramatic growth initiatives started to uh, experience significant challenges, each uh, their own challenge, which resulted in, 19, in October of 1983, us uh, reporting a $5 million loss on about $55 million in sales, which these banks that supported our growth in every way, uh, funded it, uh, encouraged us, all of a sudden pulled. And again, in 1983, I experienced the same crisis that I did in 1975 when my dad died, except for much more severe. Let me just pause right there. So this is the second time in this brief description of the history of the company in which you were blessed by the banks pulling their money from you. Yes, and it is, uh, it's a little bit like saying to a woman, uh, when you had that child, that must have been an amazing experience to give birth to a child, and she'd look at you and say, you have no idea what it feels like to do that. And I would say to, to your listeners, when a bank suddenly pulls on you and you don't know if you can make a payroll to your hundreds of employees, it is a traumatic experience. When you can't pay your bills and you live day-to-day -day on cash, it is a traumatic experience. And the good news is that we went through that environment, uh, that intense environment for an extended period of time. And we learned more in that environment than we ever learned in our education because you either learn or you die. So I would say to you again, our, the company we have today from a strategic standpoint was very much shaped by the trauma that we had to live through. And those people, and boy, I think there are probably more uh, out there than aren't, but those people who have lived through some kind of trauma often look back at that trauma and say, I couldn't have accomplished what I accomplished today without that trauma. So you get this idea, and I'm reading your book called Everybody Matters, and uh, there's, there's a, a, a sentence that I highlighted because you started to go on this acquisition phase. So here you are, the banks have pulled, and you're thinking your solution is acquire other companies. 
and you ask this question, and I want you to pick it up from, from this question. You ask, what do you buy when you have no money, not much experience, and little credibility? You buy something nobody else wants. Take it from there. What I learned in this trauma was that the history of the business, which we were very proud of in the brewing industry, did not give us the future that we could be good stewards uh, of this business. And so I felt compelled that the only way I could possibly give us a future is to get into better markets. And I felt the only way I could do that was through acquisitions. And again, no experience, no credibility, and no money. And again, it's this extremely positive attitude I was blessed with that I looked for the goodness. And so I, I went out looking for things I could buy. And when you have no money, the only thing you can buy is what somebody will virtually give you. And so I bought things nobody else wanted, companies that had no hope of losing money. And, uh, and basically the seller would either finance it or uh, accept a note from us. Anyway, again, he had no money. And so we went out to do that. And the beauty is that when you're that under that pressure, what you do uh, is you find things and you look for value that other people don't see. That's, that's the key. We looked, we were forced to try to find value where other people couldn't see it because if you could see it, other people would have bought it. And so that, create, that brought out the creativity in me uh, to, to look at these businesses, bring this intensity because we are under the tr incredible financial pressure that we had, had to be successful. Failure was death. So we had only one option. We either had to make a success or we were dead. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Bob Chapman, chairman of the St. Louis-based manufacturing technology and services company, Barry Waymiller, and author of a book on leadership entitled Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. From that moment when the banks first pulled their money, Bob Chapman has acquired 85 companies. Barry Waymiller, which could barely make payroll week to week in the 1980s, is now worth more than $2.5 billion. You said that you look for value that others don't see. And you are now you know, almost an evangelist, really, for how a company can treat its people in a way that sees the value in these people that might have been overlooked before, that you as a business leader had overlooked for many years. So explain to me your approach, and it's been documented by others, not just by you in, in your book, but uh, explain to me how you saw value in the people who worked with you and in, in your team members that you hadn't been seeing for many years as a CEO. Um, yeah, Michael, to, to kind of set the stage, in, in business school, the way I would describe it in my undergraduate and graduate period, we take management classes, uh, we, take, we get a management degree, and we go out and get a job in management. And management, as I reflect on my education, good education, as I, and, and my experience at Pricewaterhouse, management, the way I would describe the word management is the ma manipulation of others for your success. And that's what I did, you know, I, I, that's what I was taught, that's what I experienced, that's the game that it was defined by my education and my experience. 
So my first 20 years were, I was a manager. You know, I needed an accountant, I needed a receptionist, I needed a salesperson. As long as I needed them, I might even be nice to them. But I didn't think about them, other than I might have liked somebody, but I didn't sense a responsibility to them. I thought of my responsibility to create profits, shareholder value, uh, cash flow. It was never about human dignity or a sense of responsibility for the lives entrusted to me. So it wasn't until about 2000 that I, through a series of revelations that are in my book, uh, the most significant being that, uh, that the way we lead in business, which I was never taught, the way we lead our businesses, the way we treat people at work, profoundly affects the way they live their personal lives. And as I told you, uh, the way the Mayo Clinic says, the person, the, your supervisor at work, is, ends up being more important to your health than your family physician. So I transform from management, the manipulation of others for my success, to leadership, which is the stewardship of the precious lives entrusted to me so that they can return home each day safe, healthy, and fulfilled, that they know that who they are and what they do matters. And, and that transformation, once you awaken to that, once you understand that everybody working for you is somebody's precious child who's been entrusted to you, it changes everything, absolutely everything of the way you approach every day and that profound sense of responsibility. Did that happen overnight? What did you witness or see or experience that suddenly changed your approach to the people who work in your company? I think uh, it was a series of awakenings, and the first was uh, watching people betting on March Madness in 1997 when I acquired a company in South Carolina, and seeing the fun and joy uh, in their bodies as they talked about the results of the playoffs, you know, the Final Four, March Madness, and as, they, as, it, as I observed their behavior as they went to work at 8 o'clock, I just saw the joy go out of their body as they had to do their job. And I said that day, that this was the first uh, experience, why can't business be fun? Why do we spend most of our like day in things we don't like doing and then we go out and find something like betting on basketball games or playing soccer uh, to express our gifts and joy? And, and, and so that, that was the first dramatic change in my outlook. The second was being in church, listening to the rector of our church inspire us to live a meaningful and purposeful life. And I got up from the pew and I looked at my wife, Cynthia, and I said, oh my God, he's only, uh, Ed Salmon, our rector, only has us for an hour a week and we have people in our care for 40 hours a week. We could be 40 times more powerful to shape people's lives than the rector of our church. And so I said that day, business could be, should be, the most powerful force for good in the world because we have people in our care for at least 40 hours a week, every single week. So it, it opened my mind to the se profound sense of responsibility. And then the final piece of that was being in the wedding and seeing how much we all uh, got joy out of seeing my friends daughter being married to this young man and I realized that day the awakening I had at that wedding service was 
I realize that everybody that works for us is somebody's precious child, just like that young couple being married that we saw so much joy for. And the, those three things connected together changed everything. Because when you look at people not as employees or hourly workers or union workers or management, when you look at people as somebody's precious child that you've been given the opportunity to touch their lives, it changes everything about the way you think and the way you act. Okay, so in terms of the way you act for today's business leaders, tomorrow's business leaders, and really when you think about it, everybody's leaders. I mean, teachers are leaders in their classes. You can think of any example. Anybody who, who in any way has responsibility for creating jobs and keeping jobs, what is that one action that they can start doing differently that you believe makes a big difference in the lives of the people who work with you? The word I would use is to care, to genuinely care for the lives of the people entrusted to you and to actualize caring. The short version, the Cliff Notes version, is to listen to them with empathy. Because the greatest act of caring, I thought, was to go over and talk to somebody. And we've learned that the greatest act of caring is to go over and listen to somebody with empathy. Because I can say that to anybody, you need to listen to people, but people are not taught how to listen. We have never taught people to listen. We have taught people to talk. And so we had to, to transform our business into a caring organization the first thing we do is teach people to listen with empathy, which is the greatest validation of caring. The greatest act of caring is to listen to people with empathy. And our mutual friend and the person who, uh, and very often when I have a guest on who I've known for a long time and I trust, I, I'll, I'll ask, who is somebody out there that, that a broader audience should get to know because it would really benefit them? And our mutual friend, uh, William Urey, the great negotiator, uh, author of Getting to Yes, Getting Past No, The Power of a Positive No, and, and most recently, Getting to Yes with Yourself. He, he was the one who introduced me to you. Uh, and one of his favorite sayings is, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. And he always talks about that listening, pure listening, empathetic listening, as you say, is one of the most powerful things at our disposal when we negotiate just insofar as what we learn from empathetic listening. So let me ask you, what have you learned about your business and how to do business by empathetically listening to people who are on your team at any level? Is there one story you can give me? Yeah, I, I guess the most powerful story is a gentleman uh, up in Wisconsin. Uh, and um, we were having a, we were, uh, implementing something that many of your listeners will hear of, which is lean manufacturing, or it's the study of Toyota and how Toyota has transformed uh, the efficiency of that organization. And they did it by, if you will, uh, listening to their team members about how to improve the process of making quality cars in a thoughtful way. That's the simple version. And uh, a guy named Jim Womack at Harvard studied that and wrote a book uh, and it's called lean manufacturing, which is, represents the, the elimination of waste. And we were going to implement these ideas in our company uh, uh, as a way of, of, of implementing our guiding principles of leadership. And so we were 
having a session up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, we brought all of our global uh, leaders together to implement this. We came together, we shared ideas, uh, we came up with ways of improving quality, reducing costs, improving efficiency, and eliminating waste. It was all about numbers, initiatives to improve, you know, the company made more money, the customer got it on time, you know, the traditional language of business, which is numbers. And I don't know why, Michael, but as I sat in that audience listening to these three gentlemen I did not know, uh, I, I really wasn't interested in the numbers for some reason. And I'm watching the body language of these three people kind of called at short notice to talk about the traditional language of business. And I said to the one gentleman, Steve, who again, I didn't know, I said, Steve, and again, I have no idea why I asked this question. I said, how did it affect your life? Not having any idea what he'd say. And he said something that is, I've told this story a thousand times. He said, my wife is talking to me. And I said, what? I said, I don't understand. He said, you know what it's like to go to work in a place where you come in, you're told what to do, nobody asks you what you think, you get 10 things right and you don't hear a word, you get one thing wrong and you get your ass chewed out. You're told you know, that your salary, you're paid too much, your benefits cost too much, but they don't give you the tools you need to do the job. He said, I realize now that in that environment, prior to Barry Wimler, in that environment, I went home and I wasn't very good to my family. He said, now because people listen to me, they ask me what they think, they validate this by doing the things to improve things, I find that when I go home at night, I feel better about myself. And when I feel better about myself, I treat my wife with respect as I am treated at work. And when I treat her with respect, she talks to me. I said, Steve, we're gonna introduce a new metric into the ideas that Jim Womack created in lean manufacturing, which is the reduction in the divorce rate in America. That day, Michael, I realized something I had never realized before, that the way we treat people in our care at our work environments affects the way they go home and treat their spouses and their children the way they live in their community, the way they feel about their country. And as you know, 88% of all people in this country today feel they work for a company that does not care about them, that basically uses them for their gain, and they feel it and they don't feel good. And so that was the revelation that day when Steve told me that as a result of people asking him what he thinks, valuing what he contributes, that he actually allowed things, his ideas to help improve things, that when he went home, he had a better relationship with his wife and daughter. Well, now remember, to put these two pieces together, if Mayo Clinic says that your leader at work has a more profound impact on your health and your family doctor, and that the way you are treated at work uh, profoundly affects the way you treat those in your care at home, connect those dots and see that we could profoundly affect the health of our country, not by Obamacare or Trump care, but by simply businesses reducing the amount of stress, re re increasing the amount of joy and fulfillment, we could profoundly change the health of this country rather than more pills and more doctors and more hospitals by simply more care. And we could have people live more productive, meaningful lives if they felt valued where they choose to work and they go home.
feeling better about themselves, and if you feel better about yourself, you are good, better to other people, not only in your family, but in your community and your country. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest is Bob Chapman, chairman of the manufacturing company Barry Waymiller and author of the book on leadership, Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. And I want to continue this conversation a little longer for one important reason. I want to know how Bob Chapman has managed to grow his company, Barry Waymiller, without shipping American jobs overseas. Okay, so now what's so fascinating is I'm talking to you. You are the leader of a manufacturing company, and manufacturing has been getting a lot of attention in the news. And it is the people in in your part of the country where your operations are who we've learned as a nation have been so alienated and so dissatisfied because of how many manufacturing jobs have dried up. But again, listening to you, it's not simply that they've dried up. The ones that exist may be staffed by people who are not being heard by the people leading their companies. So here's my question for you. In manufacturing, even for people who are gainfully employed, even for people in your business, you'll have to tell me this, there must be enormous stress just looking at the landscape of the transformation in robotics. We keep on hearing about how jobs are being reduced, not because of any necessarily ill intent by business leaders, but because there are new machines that can do things much more efficiently than people. And I know you have made, it's a mark of pride for you that you have not exported jobs from American, your American manufacturing companies overseas. First of all, I want to know how you accomplish that. Given the price competitiveness of labor overseas, how have you been able to hold on to your employees? My understanding is you have, what, 8,000 U.S. employees? 12,000. Around the world. Around the world. And how many of those are in America? About 8,000. About 8,000. But given the, uh, the increasing role of robotics in manufacturing, boy, the people must have a lot to say to you and others about their anxieties, and how do you deal with that? Yeah, I would say, Michael, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't hang my hat on robotics uh, because in my 40 years in business, we've had automated machine tools that make parts in 10 minutes instead of an hour. Uh, uh, robotics is only the most recent technology, but we have computers that do things that secretaries used to do, you know, so everybody in every facet uh, are looking for ways to do things more efficiently so that we can be competitive uh, and and sell our product in the marketplace and create value. So there's been pressure my entire 40 years uh, on this. And so what I would say to you, though, if we, in general, and again, we primarily operate in industrialized countries, you know, Germany, Italy, France, England, America. Our primary manufacturing is in industrialized countries where people are paid what I consider a fair wage and uh, have good skills and are traditional manufacturing bases from the Industrial Revolution. So a lot of people are abandoning these because of tremendous competitive price pressure and the need to create profits for shareholders. We have taken the position that through good strategies and allowing people to fully share their gifts that you don't have to abort to, where in the world can we employ people 
that will work for less than the people we have here. We're going to prove that you can pay people fairly and treat them superbly and compete globally. And, but we need to allow people to fully share their gifts. So it's a rich combination of not just culture, it's not just allowing people to fully share their gifts, but it's also a combination of a good strategy. You can't just be nice to people and think that you will create value. It's a combination of a good strategy and a good culture which come together and create a vibrant, thriving organization where people fully share their gifts, they're deploying good strategies, creating good value, and challenging people every day, how can we be better, how can we be better? Not pressuring people, but challenging people uh, to, full, uh, to show up fully present, share your gifts, feel part of something greater than just your own good, and return home each day safe, healthy, and fulfilled. That is our goal, and that's what that's what's, is described as a thriving organization. Give me a specific example of where you feel you are creating greater value and, and connected to a product, connected to anything you want. You are actually creating greater value for your company by keeping jobs in America in the, in, under the umbrella of your corporate culture that you've created as opposed to paying lower wages far away from our shores. Well, the, I think the best example is the one that's in the book, which talks about uh, our company in Green Bay, Wisconsin, makes a large equipment for the tissue industry. An 80-year-old company we acquired that uh, was significantly challenged when we acquired it and was under uh, had already moved uh, production of their printing equipment to Brazil to get to lower cost labor. So they'd already, under the pressure to make profits, greater profits, and to be competitive, they'd already moved production from Green Bay, Wisconsin, where we have very fine UAW team members, to Brazil, where the cost was probably a third. Uh, and then they would ship the machines back to the United States, uh, their primary market. And at the same time, one of the major consumer products companies who bought uh, their tissue equipment had basically said, you will either move production to China or we will not buy your product because we want you to reduce the price of your product by 40% to meet our needs because we want to reduce the cost of capital to produce our product. So the only way you can do that is you've got to move your production to China. So when we stepped into this business in Green Bay, they were under tremendous pressure uh, from one of their largest customers to move production of their tissue equipment, tissue packaging equipment, to China uh, so that we could reduce our price by 40%, which is what they were demanding of us to reduce their investment cost. We stepped into that. By the way, when you say stepped in, this is a company you were looking to and eventually purchased. Yeah, we, we did acquire the company. And we stepped into that company and said, in all due respect, we are not moving. We are going to, first of all, we're going to move production of the flexographic printing presses back to Green Bay, Wisconsin, back to the UAW team members, and we are going to prove that we can pay people fairly, treat them superbly, and we can compete globally right here from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Just the opposite of everything you read about and going on politically right now. And so we, without a study, we just said, you know, we are gonna prove we can do that. And we moved production back to Green Bay, Wisconsin. This is 12 years ago. And we said to the large consumer products company, we are not moving production to China. 
you are going to buy this product, built right here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and you're going to like it. And they, they were livid that we did not succumb to the demand that everybody else was moving to China. And we said, we are not going to do that. And we stood in front of the 800 people in this plant in Green Bay you know, under this pressure, and we said, we are going to prove that we can compete right here from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and we are going to give all of you a future if we all come together and bring our gifts fully together. We're going to prove we can pay people fairly, treat them superbly, and we can compete globally. And that is 12 years ago, and that company is thriving today. Is that company making more profit today than it did when it was manufacturing out of Brazil? The answer is dramatically uh, so. It was, and it is not just because we moved production back. It's, we brought in truly human leadership. We brought in the principles of lean, which means we all need to work together to do things better, continuous improvement. We started working uh, on technology. We combined our team in Italy and Green Bay, Wisconsin. We now are the leading provider of the technology, and we weren't, so we invested in technology. We invited in culture. We earned the respect of the UAW team members. We said, together we can give you a future. Now let's work together. And we, we took some of the wet blanket off people and said, let's, let's, let's prove we can be good stewards of these people in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And people rose to that dramatically to prove that we can, together, if we sh share our gifts fully, we can compete in the world without simply aborting to the lowest cost we can find of somebody in the world that's going to produce that. You had to go to one of the main purchasers of this equipment and say, we're moving production back to the U.S. where it's going to be more expensive to produce, but that's what you're going to buy. How did you get to yes when there was such resistance? It was probably a three-year challenge. I mean, because, again, this large consumer products company was not used to somebody, given their power, saying no uh, and, and we had to stand up for our people and say, we are going to build a product in Green Bay, and you're going to like it. And they didn't like They were not used to somebody saying no because they, their chairman of the company had challenged them. You will reduce the cost of buying equipment by 40%. We're going to help people move production to China. And, uh, and, so, and so it was really – they just couldn't believe we said no. And we, and, and we eventually got a major order from them built in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and we showed them that uh, we could create value for them and for us. But it took, it was three or four years. They were not used to people saying no. Our responsibility as stewards of those 800 people in that plant was to show, give them, remember, the responsibility of a leader in any organization is to give the people in their care a grounded sense of hope for a better future. A grounded sense of hope for a better future. And that is what we did to the people in Green Bay, Wisconsin. If you go to these people before we bought the company, they would have said they had no hope of a future. They, like everybody else, were gonna see their jobs move to Brazil, China, Eastern Europe, et cetera. And in fact, that company has been stable, it has grown, it is strong, it is now a market leader in that space, and it was the investment in people, it was the investment in technology, it was the investment in uh, continuous improvement. It, you know, it's, it, it's like a great soup. It wasn't any one uh, ingredient, it was a blend of them all. It's not any one thing by itself, Michael. Okay, so big macroeconomic question that ties into some of the micro stuff you've been telling me about. We all wanna know, how do we save the Rust Belt? 
and I think we've gotten some answers from you, but if you were in charge, if you were made the, and I know you wouldn't like this title, but you know the, the Rust Belt Czar, the guy who is in charge of turning it around in these formerly thriving manufacturing areas, what would your first step be? What would you advise the current leaders of our country to do? I would go back to our education system. The problem, and we're, we're working with, with, uh, on this very hard, is right now we are teaching people management and we need to teach them leadership. We need to change the language uh, and the practices of business. We need to prepare young men and women entering the field because remember, we've talked about manufacturing, Michael, but this is a much bigger issue than manufacturing. It has to do with our healthcare hospitals, it has to do with the military, it has to do with education. We, we can focus on the brokenness of business, which clearly is kind of the topic, you know, because of the current political environment. People like Carrier and, that, you know, that Trump is challenging people. So it's kind of the buzz right now, but it's a much bigger issue than that. People are hurting in healthcare. People are hurting in the military. People are hurting in education. 88% of all people in this country feel they work for an organization that does not care about them. So if I were to change anything, I would go back to our education system, which basically studies companies that, in quotes, are successful and then teaches how to be successful like the successful companies. But the successful companies are not built on a foundation of caring for people. And we're kind of self-destructing as we try to create monetary worth, but not human worth. We're not creating human dignity. When we took people off of the farms and put them into production factories, Ford Motor Company plants, we took their sense of dignity that they had and the craft they had of raising cattle or, or, or vegetables, and we put them on an assembly line making, uh, putting on hubcaps every 10 seconds. And so we've, we've, when we created the Industrial Revolution, it was about creating wealth, not human dignity. And it, we need to combine the two. We need to create human wealth. We need to create society wealth. We need to create an environment where people understand the profound significance of leadership, whether they're in the military or in politics or in healthcare or in Rust Belt manufacturing. So un until we engage in our education system, where we teach people to listen, where we teach people how to care, we are going to continue to self-destruct as a society because we are using people for our gain. So what we have to do is we have to teach people how to listen because just saying that the greatest act of care is to listen to somebody, people don't know how to do it. And so we started a nonprofit that is growing dramatically around the country that goes out and teaches people to listen to each other. We need to begin at a very young age started teaching people how to listen to each other, not how to debate, not how to give speeches, but we need first to teach them to listen to others because that is the greatest gift you can, act of love, act of care, you can give to anybody in your span of care. Well, Bob Chapman, chairman of Barry Waymiller, uh, it has been a privilege listening to you on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. It's been an honor to talk to you, Michael, and uh, I think we're on a crusade together. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. 
If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.